We usually worry about risks and trials being in the active arm with a potential new active compound causing some side effects. But two analyses published on the BMJ.com this week are concerned that risks in the placebo arm, the risk of going without treatment, are not adequately taken account of or patients aren't adequately informed of what they might be. I'm joined by those authors now. Firstly, um, hello Robin Emsley. You're a professor of psychiatry at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. And you and your colleagues are worried about placebo trials for schizophrenia. So can you take us through your concerns? Okay, thanks Thanks very much, Duncan. So the article was written to express our concerns about the ongoing use of placebo in specifically in relapse prevention studies with antipsychotics in schizophrenia. And basically our concerns uh, evolve around um, issues relating to the fact that we are probably underestimating the risk of harm associated with participation in these trials. Um, we are not always recognizing the risk of coercion uh, in terms of recruiting patients to these studies. And um, we believe that um, uh, there's not always sufficient awareness by participants of the risks involved in these studies. Now, if we can just pick you up on that. Um, What's the danger of people going without treatment? We're more used to, to risks associated with actual treatment. So schizophrenia is a, is a chronic and debilitating illness. It requires long-term uh, maintenance treatment with antipsychotic medication. And when the treatment is discontinued, uh, the risk of relapse is very high. And this is the case even after a single episode, the first episode of, of uh, psychosis. So there's a very high risk of relapse with treatment discontinuation. Uh, and relapse events themselves are associated with considerable um, risk. So um, both psychosocial uh, consequences of relapse can be um, uh, devastating for patients and uh, there's also some evidence to indicate uh, a risk of biological harm associated with relapse so we're saying basically that the risk uh, of exposing patients to illness recurrence in in these maintenance trials with placebo is is not ethically justifiable okay and You've some other concerns which are all expressed uh, very well in your analyses and people can go and have a look there. Um, but do you think the concerns that you have are echoed by ethics committees which are signing off these trials? I think there's wide, widespread concern about the, the ongoing use of placebos in, in schizophrenia trials. Um, and I think uh, many ethics committee, uh, many ethics committees will be uh, very reluctant to approve these studies. But I think there are also um, other ethics committees that actually um, take a different point of view. 
And obviously they do because these studies are being approved by ethics committees around the world. Okay. Jonathan Mandel, if we could turn to you now. You're a lecturer in human geography at the University of Dundee, and your paper is looking at a similar thing, but this time in rheumatoid arthritis trials. Um, The difference is you've managed to actually get hold of some of the documentation from the ethics committees of these trials. Um, So could you explain what you've written about? Absolutely. So we looked at one trial which was looking at the use of homeopathy in rheumatoid arthritis, and then we looked at two trials which looked at patients with active rheumatoid arthritis and inadequate responses to methotrexate. The issue with randomization to a placebo-controlled group came up in those latitude trials where patients were randomized to treatment either with the newer biological drug plus methotrexate or with placebo plus methotrexate. So there's clear risks of inadequate treatment of, of active rheumatoid arthritis, everything from structural damage to additional pain and functional impairment. So just to pick up on those risks, the Ethics Committee has expressed concern about these these potential risks. What have they actually said? Well, I should say we had access, by and large, to part of the Ethics Committee documents rather than the entirety. So one of the issues we found when we were writing the paper was that there's lots of material which you might expect to be fairly freely available, which isn't. From what we could tell, the Ethics Committee had explicitly flagged up the issue of placebo in the control group as an important one, but they didn't then follow through to, for example, insist that that be, be communicated in clear, in clear terms to trial participants. And there were some potential options for mitigating risk, which, from what we've seen, weren't insisted on by the Ethics Committee. OK, thank you. Uh, Robin, if we turn back to you here, uh, it seems that in these rheumatoid arthritis trials, trials, there's a potential for a lack of information that might be necessary for fully informed consent actually getting to the patients. And you have similar concerns about informed consents in your schizophrenia studies too. I was listening to what Jonathan was saying with interest because there are clear similarities in in our situation. There is an under-awareness of the risks associated with participating in these studies and that this risk is not clearly explained to trial participants. So um, a lot of um, the justification for these placebo-controlled trials is based on three premises in our situation uh, that we think may be flawed. First of all, there is an assumption that because the available empirical evidence indicates no increased risk of severe harm, that this is indeed the case. The problem with that, of course, is that the evidence is is not good. It it hasn't been researched very well, so an absence of evidence doesn't indicate that there is no risk. Uh, And then the second belief is that when recurrence of illness occurs, we are able to effectively detect early warning signs and intervene with rescue medication. And the problem here is that while this may be the case in some uh, situations, um, it is not the case in others. And sometimes the illness recurrences can occur abruptly without clear-cut warning and the uh, rescue medications are not always effective.
And uh, then the third assumption is that from a statistical point of view, fewer relapses with placebo-controlled trials uh, would be necessary to, to detect a significant dif difference between the placebo and the active uh, treatment. But that this also may not be the case because with placebo-controlled trials, you have a higher dropout rate, and that actually nullifies the statistical advantage. So um, these are arguments that we, we put forward. I was going to say, and that's an interesting point about the quality of the available evidence as well. What we found was, was that in one case uh, with, with rheumatoid arthritis, a single study which wasn't generalizable to participants of the trial in question was relied on quite heavily, even where a more systematic review of the available evidence might have provided a better basis for making, an in, for making informed choices. So even where there is more research evidence available, what we found didn't ins inspire confidence that the ethical approval process always ensures that researchers and ethics com committees engage with this. So all of this begs the questions, are ethics committees engaging enough with the minutiae of trial design and the necessity, uh, the ethical necessity of a really good trial design? Obviously, individual ethics committees differ greatly in their uh, the le level of expertise of the members of the committees, the uh, information, the quality of the information that's available to them. So I would imagine that there's a lot of variation in the um, decision outcomes of, of different committees. A concern that we have is not just around ethics committees, but that regulatory authorities are actually encouraging the use, the ongoing use of placebo in these cl clinical trials. And uh, with regulatory authorities encouraging um, the ongoing use of these studies, I, I guess ethics committees um, are, are much more open to approving these studies. So another author of the rheumatoid arthritis trial analysis is Ben Goldacre, um, who's been able to join us now. Hi, Ben. Hi there. Sorry, I've just been listening in. It was interesting. So John and Ben, in your paper, you do talk about some ways in which this process could be improved. Uh, could you take us through those? Yeah. Well, I guess, firstly, it was, it was an interesting question you asked about how effectively different ethics committees are working. The short answer is I don't know, and, and to find out would be, as things stand, really quite challenging to access the partial information we, we draw in our, in our paper to quite a significant amount of work. So if there were a move to make the documentation around the ethical approval process and the documents shown to patients when discussing cons consent uh, to make this freely available, that would allow a much clearer sense of, of how ethics committees are, are working and ethics processes could then be independently reviewed, could be publicly discussed, and we could learn from where these examples of good practice and from where things could be done better. I think it's, it's really important to emphasize that transparency shouldn't just be about the methods and results of clinical trials. It should be about all of the documents and all of the deliberations around a clinical trial. And we had to jump through some actually quite, quite absurd hoops in some cases to get hold of just simple information like a copy of the blank consent form or the patient information sheet. And it, it's very clear to me that all of this documentation should be routinely, freely, publicly available. 
And actually, it's often quite important to know when you, when, you, when you read a trial and you can see that the comparator group were getting what seems to you as a clinician to be an inferior um, treatment, often the first question in your head is, I, I wonder what they said to the patients. And that shouldn't be a secret. So I think that blank consent forms should be made publicly available, along with the patient information sheet, along with the correspondence with ethics committees. And I think that would drive up standards and it would allow people to learn from where things are being done well and where things are being done badly. It would also allow, I think, different ethics committees to learn from from each other's deliberations. And is there legislation or convention about the sharing of these? So there's, no, there's, there's currently no legislation and there's currently no norm around sharing this information. And that's actually one of the things that we're trying to drive up with a, a different project called opentrials.net where we are trying to thread together and match all of the publicly accessible data and documents on all the trials that have ever been conducted. So this is a, a rather old idea, I guess, of threaded publications where people have often wanted to be able to match together registry entries with the relevant trial publication. But we're going a step beyond that. We're also looking to match on, for example, clinical study reports, um, uh, risk of bias data where that's been extracted by uh, people working to do a systematic review, for example, to match on the deliberations by the FDA or the EMA uh, about a particular trial or a particular treatment because regulators are often much less permissive than academic journals around people playing fast and loose with their uh, analytic approach but also trial paperwork. So we've got a place where people can upload, if they wish to, consent forms, patient information sheets, case report forms, protocols, lay summaries, statistical analysis plans, and so on. Now, given the trouble that you had just getting these few ethics documents together, presumably there has to be something more, some sort of stick or a, or a legislation, to actually make these go get into the, the public domain. Well, I think that modifying norms is often the best first step. So with Open Trials, we've been discussing with NIHR, the UK NHS Research Funder, um, and we're, we're hoping that they will be sharing all of these documents that they have on UK publicly funded trials, because, of course, NIHR does ask for copies of, of lots and lots and lots of paperwork from trialists. And I think that information shouldn't just sit on a, 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 a desktop computer somewhere in NIHR in Southampton. That, that sort of information should be publicly accessible. And there is no good reason why it should not be. So I think this actually may be one of those areas where um, public funders of, of clinical research can lead the way. It's important to be clear, though, that that's not the only part of the ethics approval process where we identified shortcomings. Um, People like Ian Chalmers have been banging on forever about the importance of systematically reviewing the evidence about um, current and proposed treatments before conducting a trial. And I think what we found and what we describe at, at, at more length in our paper is that often people were not really taking a very robust approach to, um, to scanning the evidence beforehand. And also the ethics committees didn't seem to be requiring um, a high standard of evidence before approving a trial, which I think is is concerning, and uh, and I, I don't I don't think it's 
likely that the, the deliberations that we saw with the small number of trials that we examined here are likely to be exceptional. I think the problems that we identified are likely to be widespread. And actually, that's another reason why this sort of information should be more widely accessible. Now, Robin, we, we haven't heard from you for a bit. Would you welcome this? Would you find it useful yourself? Um, yes, sir, I, I, I sure would. My own experience has, has uh, not been very good in this respect. Um, uh, I, I've been um, trying to share um, data more than ethics information um, uh, and uh, found it extremely difficult to, to, to get to data, uh, particularly from uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, uh, you know, we've been talking about it, but there are just there's still so many barriers to, to actually getting to the information. And lastly, uh, John, you've some more proposals about the kind of information that patients should be receiving when they sign up for a trial. Could you summarise them for us now? So some of the, uh, the other recommendations we had were along the lines of ensuring that the risks of any research are appropriately mitigated, which would include the the risks associated with being randomised to a placebo-controlled group, uh, to give patients a clear summary of the existing evidence and of any risks about participation. So, for example, if there's if there's previous evidence which casts doubt on whether a on whether a particular therapy is plausible, or whether participants face particular risks from taking part in a trial that should be explained to them and we argue that there should be a move to assessing the to robustly assessing the quality of the proposed research and telling and telling participants about this uh, so ethics committees or 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 others should look at the evidence submitted by investigators and look critically at the at the research proposal there's the question of whether com ethics committees should simply reject research that is unlikely to prove informative, but if ethics committees do choose to permit poor quality research, that should be quite that should be that should be quite explicitly explained to patients so they can make a choice about whether it's worth it's worth their their time and energy to take to take part in the trial or not. You've been listening to Robin Emsley, Jonathan Mandel and Ben Goldacre talk about the risks to patients of placebo-controlled randomised trials. You can read those analyses. Placebo controls in clinical trials concerned about use in relapse prevention studies in schizophrenia. And the second one, problems with ethical approval and how to fix them, lessons from three trials in rheumatoid arthritis, both published on the bmj.com. If you enjoyed this and you want to hear more, find us on SoundCloud or look for us in iTunes. Thanks for listening.